Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners may wish to know that the following conversation contains references to and discussions of deceased persons. And together we can embrace the Uluru Statement from the heart. We can answer its patient, gracious call for a voice enshrined in our constitution. Because all of us ought to be proud that amongst our great multicultural society, we count the oldest living, continuous culture in the world. Those words, read by my colleague, Professor James Curran, are taken from the victory speech delivered by Australia's newly elected Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, on federal election night, May 21, 2022. It's now over a year since Anthony Albanese made that speech, and as everyone in this country knows, all Australians of voting age will vote yes or no later this year in a referendum that aims to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Australian Constitution. But what is the voice? What is the Uluru Statement from the heart to which Prime Minister Albanese referred? And why does a voice need to be enshrined in the Australian Constitution? Hello. This is Making Sense of History, the podcast where we find out about the present by running the clock back to see where it all started. I'm Nick Eckstein from the History Department at the University of Sydney, talking to you from Wadanjedi land. Today's episode is part one of a two-part conversation, in which I and my guest will be making sense of the history that lies behind the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Mark McKenna is an Emeritus Professor at the University of Sydney. He has authored a number of prize-winning books, among them From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories, Looking for Blackfellas Point, and An Eye for Eternity, The Life of Manning Clark. That last title won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Non-Fiction, as well as the Victorian, New South Wales, Queensland and South Australian Premier's Awards. His most recent book, Return to Uluru, was described by Cobble Cobble woman Professor Megan Davis as an important part of Australia's truth-telling canon. My own opinion is that Return to Uluru is a masterpiece and should be read by every Australian who cares about the history of their country. Mark, there's no one with whom I'd rather discuss today's topic. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much for the invitation to speak. It's uh, an excuse to get together as well, since uh, we've been in different places for some time. In that passage from Prime Minister Albanese's victory speech that we've just heard, there are concepts and terms that may be unfamiliar to non-Australian listeners. But it's also just a fact that lots of Australians know little to nothing about the Australian Constitution. Some Australians don't fully get why Indigenous Australians have called for the constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament that Albanese mentioned. One of the reasons I've invited you, Mark, and why I'm so pleased you've agreed to speak with me, is that I really want to try to break down some of these concepts and make sense of them in their historical context. So in simplest terms, what is the voice to Parliament that Indigenous Australians are asking for? First and foremost, the voice will be a body of probably between 20 and 24 people chosen by Aboriginal communities around the country and elected by Indigenous Australians. It's an Indigenous body and its role is to advise the Federal Parliament on legislation that's likely to affect their lives. The voice has no power to compel Parliament to do anything. It's simply an advisory body. So the supremacy of Parliament remains supreme. It's essentially a voice from Aboriginal people to 
the Commonwealth Government in Canberra. It's not a voice from Canberra is often uh, is characterised. The important thing is that Aboriginal people believe that the voice needs to be enshrined in the Constitution. So, of course, that it can't be removed by the whim of governments. There are two things in what you were saying that are so very important, as you've already indicated, because a lot of the debate, particularly from the no side, has propagated the idea that this is a Canberra voice. That's one of the expressions being used by the conservative opposition, as though they're tainting it with uh, the negative reputation of politicians. This is just another politician's idea. And you've pointed out it's not that. That line, it's taken straight from the 1999 Republic referendum in Australia, where the no side was saying things such as, vote no to the politician's republic. So again, it's a populist appeal to people who don't like politicians. But it's a lie because the voice is to Canberra, not from Canberra. And the other really important thing here, I think, especially for people listening overseas, is to realise that the concept of the voice embodies the recognition of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution. So the voice is both an advisory body to Parliament and its insertion in the Constitution is a means of substantive recognition of Indigenous Australians. When you put it like that, Mark, it sounds so simple. And the only surprising thing is that such a body doesn't exist already, but it doesn't. So why now? Why do we have Indigenous people calling so loudly in 2023 for this voice? It's a question of how far we want to go back, but we could start with the, the most recent, say, the last decade or so. The voice is what's emerged from a decade or more long process of government reports and committees. It's the point at which Aboriginal people and leaders have arrived in deciding what reform they want to ask from the Australian people and the Australian government. For example, since 2011, we've had like seven public processes and 10 public reports on constitutional recognition. And they have all, in the end, finished with the Uluru Statement from the Heart. That is the source of the voice. I'd like to go right back to 1901, which is the year that marks the promulgation of the Australian Constitution. It's when the country we recognise as Australia first came into existence. So, Mark, what is the Australian Constitution? The first point is that it's first and foremost a written constitution. As we know, not every country has a written constitution. Australia's constitution grew out of the Federation movement in the 1890s. There were a series of conventions that led to Federation. The objective was to unite six self-governing British colonies into one Commonwealth, and very importantly, to federate under the Crown, as the preamble to the Australian Constitution makes clear. The Australian Constitution is referred to as the Washminster system, which is basically because we took elements from the British system and also federal aspects of the US system, such as the name Senate and House of Representatives, and the fact that each state in Australia has the same number of reps in the Senate. So, Another important thing about the Australian Constitution, which is really essential to realise, I think most Australians, for example, don't realise this, that it was approved through a process of referendum. So it was achieved through popular endorsement, through a democratic vote. And it came into being through an act of British Parliament, because, of course, it had to legally and technically 
the Australian colonies were British colonies. So that's that's a kind of brief summary of what of what the Australian Constitution is. No, that's very clear indeed. So you've given us a very interesting insight into its framing. Who was involved in that framing? The founding fathers, those chaps with the long beards who we've probably all seen their portraits hanging about in various places. Sir Henry Parks was one of the key figures, the so-called yawn father of federation. Um, And there were other prominent uh, colonial politicians such as Sir Edmund Barton in New South Wales, politician and barrister who became Australia's first prime minister from Victoria, Alfred Deakin, the second prime minister of Australia. From Queensland, Samuel Griffiths, the judge and politician, and from Tasmania, Andrew Inglis Clark, who was a Republican and barrister and um, one of the key architects of the Australian Constitution. And founding fathers to a man. Uh, so we have no women involved in this process, obviously. No, not in the drafting and framing of the Constitution, no. The nation has formed on the lands of many Indigenous nations. Here we're coming to the point of asking all of these questions. So how many... Aboriginal people were involved or consulted in the framing of the Constitution? None. The reason for that, of, of course, is because the founding principle of the Australian Constitution and the Australian Commonwealth was purity of race, white Australia. Aboriginal people did not come into that calculation in any serious way in 1901. So, in effect, the decision to exclude them in 1901 was barely conscious because it was assumed that they would, as a race, die out. You've preempted my next question, which is whether their approval or their opinion was sought. No. The dying race idea was the most widespread belief about the future of Indigenous culture. The fact that they were seen to be inferior, that you know, white British culture was superior, Therefore, they didn't have the right to vote, and therefore, there was no point in including them from the perspective of those white Australian politicians at the time in 1901. Aboriginal people weren't consulted. Their opinion wasn't asked, let alone being given a hand in writing the document. But does the Constitution actually even mention Indigenous people? We have to separate when the Constitution was originally founded in 1901 and and now, because things have changed in the interim. In 1901... The Constitution has, uh, for example, 128 sections and it mentioned Aboriginal people twice, but both of those occasions Aboriginal people were mentioned in negative terms. So, for example, in section 127, the Constitution stated, Aboriginal natives shall not be counted. And that effectively was when calculating the population because they weren't going to be given the vote, so they weren't therefore to be counted as part of electoral districts. So that was the reason for that exclusion of not counting Aboriginal natives. So the original version of the Australian Constitution mentioned Indigenous people in order to exclude them from the political process. And that was done because of the explicitly expressed belief that Australia's first peoples were a race whose inferiority doomed them to extinction. Their numbers were counted in order to monitor their decline, but they were not counted as full citizens. It's really important to realise that Aboriginal people in the early 20th century were counted in different ways. It wasn't that they were not counted at all, but the Constitution specifically excluded counting Aboriginal people in determining the numbers of people within Commonwealth electoral districts. The other thing we have to remember in discussing this debate about whether Aboriginal people were counted or not in the census 
is the reasons people were counted. I mean, let's remember that oftentimes Aboriginal people were counted to measure the d- decline of the dying race. That is just as, as important a question when discussing the census and whether they were counted or not, is to ask the question, why were their numbers being estimated in certain states for certain reasons? And that's a really important aspect of this, because they were not considered to be equal citizens. And this is the overriding point. We'll come to some of the darker consequences of this exclusion of Indigenous peoples from our Australian democracy. But in direct relation to the origins of the call for the voice, what effect did this exclusion have in political terms? And I'm talking about the exclusion written into the original constitution of 1901. I think it's fair to say that most Australians don't realise the history, the long history of Aboriginal activism, protest and struggle. That'd be the first point. Although they know and hear a lot about the reformers of Australian democracy, the white reformers, the white heroes, they don't know about Aboriginal activism. And we see repeated calls for land rights by many activists, not only land rights but also citizenship, equality uh, and constitutional and civil rights in Australia throughout the 20th century. For example... When the Australian Parliament was founded, opened I should say, in 1927 in Canberra, so its first 26 years were were held in Melbourne while they waited for the, the federal capital to be built, and the new building was opened in 1927. The day that building was opened, two Wiradjuri Aboriginal elders, who were both about 80 years of age, walked from Tumut in southern New South Wales to Canberra to protest against white Australia's claiming of sovereignty to advocate for their, quote, sovereign rights the very day that that parliament was opened in Canberra. In 1938, on the occasion of the 150th anniversary of British settlement stroke invasion in Australia, Aboriginal people in Sydney held a day of mourning to protest white Australia's unthinking, unreflecting celebration of that event. I could go on (laughs) through the 60s, the Bark Petitions, the Barunga Statement in 1988, the Tent Embassy in 1972, the referendum in 67. There's a long history of activism by Aboriginal men and women throughout the 20th century. A casual conversation we had prior to doing this recording I remember you saying as a kind of off-the-cuff remark that Indigenous people tend to know the Australian constitution rather better than non-Indigenous Australians. It's an important thing to say because if you're included, as white Australians are in the constitution, you don't need to think about your place. But if you're excluded, you then need to know the terms of that document from which you're excluded and you need to understand them. I think it's fair to say that Indigenous Australians do understand the Australian Constitution much better than non-Indigenous Australians. And that's because they know what it's like on the outside of that Constitution, and that's why they continue to demand their rights and demand to be included in that document. (music) 
So the foundational document of our Australian Federation, our democracy, effectively erases Indigenous people. You couldn't vote. They weren't counted in the census as part of the population for electoral purposes. They weren't accorded proper citizenship rights. Didn't the famous referendum of 1967, to which everybody constantly refers, fix all of these problems? No, it, it didn't. And, you know, that the, the first point to make here, I think, is that the way the referendum has been remembered is much more glowing and positive and redemptive, if you like, than it actually was. And I think that's because white Australia is keen to pat themselves on the back about 67 and not look at the cold, hard facts. So in 1967, the original framers of the Constitution, for example, in Section 127, specifically excluded Aboriginal people from being counted, as you just said, Nick, in determining the population of electoral districts. Now, the 67 referendum removed that section. It also removed the other reference to Aboriginal peoples, which was their exclusion from the race power in Section 5126. Now, lots of people, for example, also think that the 67 referendum gave Indigenous Australians a right to vote. It didn't. They had the right to vote from 1962. They also think that 67 referendum gave Aboriginal people citizenship. It didn't. They were already citizens. The really clear point to get across here is that the 67 referendum removed the negative references to Indigenous people, but it did not put positive references in place. So, for example, that means that now, after the 67 referendum, Australia's constitution has no mention of Australia's Indigenous people. It's silent. The metaphors are so powerful here, aren't they? I mean, it's the most extraordinary fact that a foundational document doesn't mention the original peoples who occupied this land for 60,000 years. That, that's a quite staggering thing, I think, when you reflect on it. Our next step is to ask where discussion about the voice really began, and that is with something you've already mentioned in passing, the Uluru Statement from the Heart of May 2017, because most recently the call for a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament starts there, doesn't it? So, in literal terms, what is the statement from the heart? Well, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, I mean, the first thing I'd like to say about this is for listeners and for you know everyone to just reflect on the importance of the choice of location. It's not the Canberra Statement from the Heart. It's Uluru, and it's Uluru for important reasons. Because of its central role for Aboriginal people and what it's become to mean for white Australians as well as a symbol of, you know, so-called, inverted commas, spiritual centre of the nation and all of the tourism that goes with that kind of slogan. But it, it's a place that has special power and special meaning for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians. And it also attempts to symbolise that this is a movement of the people, of Aboriginal people who are moving from Uluru, fanning out across Australia, trying to ask Australian people to walk with them on this journey towards constitutional recognition and the voice. So I think those things are important. Second thing that's important is to realise that the Uluru Statement grows out of a long 
process of consultation known as the Uluru Dialogues. 1,200 Aboriginal people from across Australia attended various 12 representative gatherings, co-chaired by Pat Anderson, Megan Davis. And now, when as Australians are debating the yes and no cases for the referendum that's coming, it's crucial, I think, to remember that the question being asked of Australians emerged from this process of consultation and ultimate decision by Aboriginal people to go with the proposition of the voice. It wasn't an idea cooked up by so-called elite academics or by people in Canberra. It grew out of consultation with Aboriginal people across Australia. The statement from the heart is really where it all begins. And yet I think a huge number of Australians don't know what it contains. Is it possible to sum its contents up? First, it's a click away. It's a click for everyone. It's a click on their mobile phone. It's a click on their laptop. The Uluru Statement from the Heart, you can read the text and it will take you a minute to read it. I urge everyone to do that. It's only 439 words long. It's both poetic and pragmatic. It asserts that Aboriginal people... We're the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. The great wisdom and subtlety of the Uluru Statement is something to realise as well. The authors of the Uluru Statement note that Aboriginal sovereignty was never ceded, but they say neither was their sovereignty extinguished by colonial invasion. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? That peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? In less than an A4 page, the statement movingly describes the anguish, the pain, caused by the forces that have aliened them from their land and traditions. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. They should be hope for the future. This is the torment of our powerlessness. Most astonishingly, probably, is that there's no anger in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. There's no blame or finger-pointing, no demand for an account. The authors simply want an honest reckoning. They want to be heard. They want Australians to listen, to truly listen and to hear them. And the authors of the Statement from the Heart also just want to finish what the referendum of 67 began. Thank you, Mark. We will continue the discussion of the voice to Parliament in the second part of this podcast episode. We acknowledge the Elders past and present of the Wadangeri people of the Kulin Nation and of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional owners of the lands on which this episode of Making Sense of History was recorded. The podcast was produced by Peter Adams from the University of Sydney School of Humanities. (laughs) 